It was a year of lockdowns, border closures, and for many of us, technology was a key part of how we access the wider world. So this week on Download This Show, it is the final show of 2021, a year when the government made big swings at legislating social media, a year where the behemoth of social media, Facebook, faced more scrutiny than ever. What were the best lessons of 2021 and what can we expect from 2022? Let's find out. This is your guide to the year in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is the final episode of Download This Show for 2021 and... Gee, what a chill year it's been. Uh, joining us from the Queens of the Drone Age podcast, Amanda Yo. It's lovely to have Hi. you back. Hello. How, Thanks for having me. How's your 2021 been? Um, <laughs> look, that's... <laughs> the um, no, no, the um was perfect. The um just says everything I wanted to hear. <laughs> it was as good, I think, as anyone else's 2021 was. Fair enough. Cameron Wilson from Crikey, indeed, Associate Editor of Crikey. Welcome to Download This Show, the final for 2021. Dare Hi, I ask? my pleasure to be here. <laughs> Dare I ask how your 2021 was? Not too bad. I'm, I'm actually just about to book my booster shot, which I think probably says everything about the year. It sure does. Well, mm. let's, uh, let's burn through the biggest stories in tech, media and culture for the year. Of course, it has become a running joke. This show would not exist if Facebook didn't do morally doobliest things. Doobliest being my new favourite word of the year. Let's talk about Facebook because, of course, Facebook is no longer Facebook, which is probably one of the biggest news stories of the year. They are now meta. What do you think it means for Facebook, Amanda, that they've become part of the metaverse, as it were? I think Facebook's name change to Meta is basically just a branding thing. Mm. Like it doesn't really like a rotting banana by any other name. <laughs> you know, it's entirely the look of it. It's still the same company. They're still doing the same things. For me, it doesn't really mean anything functionally. <laughs> Mainly it's signaling Facebook's move towards the metaverse and investing in that. More broadly on the the move to Metaverse, what do you think it says about the future of Facebook, Cam? I think the story about stealing the at Metaverse handle on Instagram kind of actually really sums up what Facebook's trying to do perfectly. Because what's happening is so, you know, Facebook has all of these, um, or Meta has all of these companies underneath them. They have Facebook or Blue, as they call it internally. They have WhatsApp, they have Instagram. And they have said, well, for whatever reason, whether you think it's because they're trying to, you know, escape pressure from regulators or whether it's because they want to get away from the bad press or because they think this is the future, they've really taken on this metaverse idea. And essentially, they really want to take it over for themselves because we know that metaverse, the idea, has existed for a while, right? And it has been, you know, it was, it was a kind of science fiction idea and then it's kind of, you know, been talked about in tech circles and there are companies who've been talking about this for a while while Facebook's pivot to meta kind of in a way I guess taking the meta handle but for everything they're trying to say that we think this is the future but also the future is going to be defined as just us and everyone else is going to kind of fit into us as a kind of you know this is beyond a platform which for web 2.0 was really what companies were trying to do they were trying to say well you know we're not just really useful but actually we're something that you know you kind of you know interact with and build on this is actually a step further they're trying to own you know 
the next generation of technology all under their company and branding. Mm. What do you think we can expect from the next year of Facebook, Amanda? Well, I think they're going to talk a lot about the metaverse. Whether that actually <laughs> comes to fruition, we'll see. I think the metaverse as a concept, it's an exciting concept of the world in VR. Everyone can hang out in VR, go and do their shopping and whatever. Practically, I think we've got a long way until it actually happens. And even if it does happen, it's going to have a very limited audience, I think, for a long time. What do you mean by, by limited? What do you well, think? Do you remember what? the big VR rush in 2016 where everyone was like, oh, everyone's coming out with headsets. Everyone was very excited about this technology. And then it just kind of fizzled mm. because headsets are expensive. The software is expensive to develop. It's kind of emerging. So you don't think the metaverse is going to catch on more widely, Amanda? Am well, I, I think it it'll correctly? take a while. I mm. mean, it was 2016 when everyone was super excited about VR and then we just kind of forgot about it. And yes, there are people with headsets. There are people who play Beat Saber. But generally, I think the audience for VR currently is a bit limited just because it's so expensive and there's not much you can currently do on there right now. I guess metaverse is trying to change that with create this big universe so you have a reason to invest in a VR headset. But right now, I, I don't know, VR is still a little bit of a novelty. Mm. People are getting more interested in VR because of the pandemic. They can't go anywhere. What if you could go places in VR? Um, so it is getting a bit of interest from that perspective. But generally, I think if the pandemic ends <laughs> and we can go places more, I think people are probably not going to be as interested in it in any, anymore. Mm. What do you think, Camp? Do you think the vision for the metaverse that Facebook have outlined, do you think it actually will catch on or is it a bit of a brain fart in the mind of Mark Zuckerberg? <laughs> Could be both, actually. Why either or? Um, yeah, no, I, I think it will it, it will take on eventually. I doubt next year will be the year. My big, bold prediction for 2022 is that Facebook, so the app Facebook, it will be the last year that we really think of it as like the big kahuna, like the big app that everyone pays attention to. And that's because like, I mean, you know, so much of this year with um, Francis Haugen, with all of this, uh, you know, whistleblower and, and documents that were coming out, you know, revealing that they knew all these things about the damage that were, they were causing their users. I think a kind of like undercurrent that was not paid attention to is that Facebook is increasingly like as a, as a product, as a thing you actually use is becoming really, really kind of bad and like not that interesting. And like users are slowly dropping off and, you know, they publish this report now every quarter where you, where they share the most popular content on the platform, because, um, this kind of came in response to, there was, um, allegations that they were biased towards conservatives and using some like, uh, stats that was publicly available. They said, Hey, that's not legit. This is the real data. If you look through that data, it's all trash. Like it, it, it's it's all these things like, that are like these terrible like picture memes. Some of them are even like kind of scammy. Sharing a meme, but in the in the text is like a link to selling like herbal products. I think that the users are kind of you know voting not like out of ethics, but kind of out of like there are other platforms that are more interesting. Everyone's kind of over it. I think 2022 is the last year that we look at it as that really big, you know, the social media platform and kind of see it lose momentum and, and look elsewhere. I think that really depends on what demographics you're looking at, because while younger people are definitely moving off Facebook, they're more interested in TikTok or Snapchat and Twitter. 
older people, they're going to stay on there. It's how they connect with family and friends overseas. They enjoy sharing the kind of trashy memes and the forward this to your 10 best friends sort of thing. I mean, I think it'd be interesting to see how something like Instagram evolves because I do think Instagram itself is actually kind of becoming like the new Facebook. I don't know if you've noticed, but it feels like a lot of the behaviors that were kind of on the like starting to age, starting to, you know, show its its wrinkles, Facebook or going over to Instagram. So I'm really curious to see what they do with that as that kind of becomes essentially like the, the beating heart of the company because Med is not here yet, Blue is in the background. This really becomes what people are paying attention to. Um, Mark Zuckerberg said around the same time that all of this, this this kind of bad stuff was coming out, he was shortly afterwards, he said, you know, Facebook needs to, or Meta needs to stay youthful. And so I think this question is like, you know, how do you keep this now interesting product that I think by its nature, like social networks almost like tend to, to age, almost like as the longer they're around and have an older age group, how they'll kind of kind of keep it exciting and young is something I'll be paying attention to. You know, what would be interesting it would be if younger people, as people on Instagram grew older, the younger people who came in went back to Facebook as kind of a retro thing, like ironically. <laughs> like an iconic return to Facebook. Yeah, it could happen. People, like the flip phone's coming back. <laughs> Straight leg jeans, tagging each other's in, in, in photo uploads, or uploading like a whole digital photos all at once. Oh, yeah, I can't wait. No I'm going to do that. I love it. I think it's great. Look, uh, one thing I do want to bring up, Francis Haugen, the whistleblower was brought up earlier. What do you think the likely blowback from those revelations is actually going to be in the long term? Is it going to have a material impact on, on what Facebook does and what it becomes as a company moving forward? Yeah, I think it does. And not in like a massive changing the narrative way, but more in a confirming what we already knew and giving more social license for things to be done to big tech. Because some people were kind of surprised when a lot of these documents came out and they were like, why isn't there like a kind of a bigger impact? Like what's happening? It's almost like the majority of people who kind of knew, paid any attention to this stuff, had already priced in the fact that there were all these areas in which Facebook was turning a blind eye and, and letting their users um, be harmed and, and, and not solving these kinds of problems. So that's kind of why people weren't like, oh, like, you know, it was like big revelations, but almost like wasn't anything new. But that being said, I think that what changes is that it's just now so much more I would say mainstream and widespread that these companies are very willing to not fix problems like this, things that people have kind of, you know, suspected or known in their gut for a while. And so there's this like, you know, we've talked a, a while now about a tech backlash, the tech lash. I think that we're really going to see that, particularly the next year in terms of legislators, you know, people making laws in different countries like the US, like in Australia, like in the EU, more willing to actually say, these guys like are not very popular. We're happy to just do something because, well, yeah, we can, we, we're not worried about, you know, hurting our own reputation. If anything, it actually looks good to be harsh and big tech at the moment. Yeah, I agree. The biggest surprise for me from all of this whistleblowing was that people were surprised about it. <laughs> I was like, we know that Facebook has not been entirely great for like societal cohesion and harmony and those sorts of things. So all of the revelations, I was like, yeah, that sounds right. 
Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the year in media, technology and culture. It is our final episode for 2021. Uh, I guess this week from the Queens of the Drone Age podcast, Amanda Yo and Associate Editor of Crikey and Internet Extraordinaire, which is a, not a real term, but let's imagine that it is Cam Wilson. Um, now, of course, Cam, you did bring this up earlier, but it was a, a remarkably interesting year from a government standpoint. The Australian government was really on the front foot around legislating around tech. And I think you've you've sort of alluded to it earlier that there is, I think they've sensed a bit of blood in the water where they, they feel like they can introduce laws to curb major tech companies in part because of the fact that they are a little bit on the nose. But there's a few different pieces of legislation that are, are worth talking about. I, mean, I think there's about four or five all up. Um, so obviously there was the bargaining code. Now for people that aren't familiar with it, why was the bargaining code such a big deal in 2021? So the bargaining code was something that was supposed to address an inequality that was thought by some people who looked at the way that online publishing work. They looked at these tech platforms like Facebook and Google, and they said, you guys are getting all this content that's submitted by users, whether it's an individual or a media publisher, and you are, you know, you're sharing with other people and you're presenting it, I guess, you know, on your platform. And in the meantime, you are then, you know, running ads between that. And so you're making money off their content and publishers were like, well, you know, people choose to put their content on there and, you know, we give them reach to access to users. But this kind of, you know, perceived inequality was something that the news media bargaining code tried to address. And so it was this idea that what they wanted to do was make it easier for all these different publishers to bargain together with the, the tech platforms. And it was, you know, done through legislation, but essentially said, you guys have to negotiate with them and figure out some way to pay for the content that is on your platforms. Otherwise, we're going to crack down on you. And so this was, you know, the kind of the first I guess, a part of the tranche of, of different online laws that this government has passed, which is really kind of interesting because this government, you know, under Scott Morrison has actually been remarkably active about promoting all these kinds of laws. The news media bargaining code was their big one. It was something that, you know, a lot of people had issues with because they say, you know, that's not how the internet works. You don't, you choose to link things and that's how, you know, it shouldn't cost anything. This a attempted to say, well, what if we did it a, a different way and we ended up with the Facebook news ban in Australia for a, a couple of days that we were all like up in a, in a tizzy about, but then was kind of like over and done with quickly, but ended up with Facebook and Google deciding to, or negotiating to pay uh, Australian publishers unknown amounts, but in the tens of millions for, for the big ones to essentially say, here's your money. We can kind of stop this public campaign that you guys are saying that you deserve money. And then we kind of get, you know, social license because we've decided that we're supporting journalism and then we can all go back to you know what we're doing so in a way you know the, the tech platforms i think in a way almost viewed it as a kind of like a tax they're like well you know we don't pay that much like normal tax here but what we're doing is we're paying this kind of tax that's supporting journalism and kind of getting the government and these news media organizations off our back in broad terms amanda just from from your vantage point who do you think won out of that particular conflict I don't think there are any winners here. <laughs> Why do you think <laughs> we that? all lost? <laughs> it's like, like alien versus predator. Well, Whoever wins, we lose. <laughs> I don't think that big tech companies, like in situations like this, I don't think they're ever really going to lose. Like even if they have to make a big payout, for them that's a drop in the bucket. 
I agree with Amanda. I think she's right. It's hard for the tech companies to lose because, I mean, look, it was a bit of brinksmanship, right? Like it was the the government saying, well, we're just going to, we're going to hit you with a big stick. And then Facebook and Google, specifically Facebook, who did the news ban being like, we'll pull our services. And, and it came up to the point where Facebook obviously kind of briefly did. But what they ended up doing was, you know, paying tens of millions of dollars, which, you know, sounds like a lot, but in the scheme of things is, is like a pittance to them. And it means that they can kind of keep operating here. Like, you know, they're, they're still like printing money. And also, you know, the government can then look like they've really done something. I should also say that like, because this was this negotiation, actually a bunch of small publishers have yet to reach agreements with Facebook and Google, who've essentially said, we're not going to negotiate with you. We've got some other programs that will, can give you like a little bit of money. But out of this, we saw, you know, we saw big tech and big media companies in Australia, including, you know, the ABC, including my own employer, do kind of well. But the little people who I think to some extent were probably the ones who were actually already kind of feeling the squeeze of tech platforms on them the most, they were already kind of losing and now they've been shut out of this too. So I guess, you know, they're probably the big losers. What were the things that dictated whether media organisations did or did not get money out of this exchange? I think it was, I mean, like, so there was the size and then there was also, you know, like SBS is, is significantly smaller than, for instance, the ABC, but it's bigger than my employer, Private Media, which, which publishes Crikey. I think we were also kind of first in there as well. Like at the end of the day, this was a kind of political decision. The fact that the Australian government wanted to do something was something that they saw that it's popular at the moment to kind of be harsh and be tech. It's it's a way of funding local journalism without having to, you know, raise taxes and do that in another way. They just say, hey, tech, can you just like send some dollars over there? So th- that's kind of how it worked out. But now that that kind of almost like that news cycle is over, that they've dealt with that issue, these people who were left behind, who, who couldn't or didn't get around to signing a deal, they're the ones who seem to be left out and, and kind of lost out of this. Mm. There are a range of other forms of legislation around technology. There was, of course, online safety laws. There was the social media anti-trolling law, which I believe is still in train. What's the underpinning philosophy here, Cam? Like, it feels like the federal government is quite intent on going hard on big tech. Why? Like, where is the blood in the water that they see? So the government has been passing these laws. And I think, you know, I mentioned that, you know, whacking big tech is popular. I also think that they're kind of making this pitch for the federal election, that they are a world leader on online safety, on on tech reforms. This particularly should be viewed in the kind of context of we are not a world leader on climate change. And so they're trying to position themselves as, well, what are we a world leader in for the next election? And the other thing is it's also a pitch to this idea of keeping people safe. You know, how are we keeping families? How are we keeping children uh, safe? And, you know, we just had a pandemic. We all were inside for a lot of the time. Parents would know better than anyone else how much time that kids spent watching, you know, screens. And so they're concerned about screen time. They're concerned about what they're doing on those computers. Obviously, we saw mental health issues come out of the pandemic as well. And all of that is kind of mixed into this idea that, well, if we start to, you know, do these things about big tech who who really don't have anyone kind of backing them up, like, you know, because, you know, we have a, we have a, a conservative government who are kind of, you know, happy to, to do this. And we and on the left in the Labor Party and the Greens, we have people who are, you know, generally not as big business. There's no natural constituents to kind of back them up. So what, what's happening is they're saying, well, we know we can press you. We know that this is popular and, and it makes us look like we are doing something really exciting. And to be fair, like this government in terms of the rest of the world is going further than most other governments that 
that I, that I know. And although the laws, you know, are very like interesting, how they kind of they're reforming things in a way that essentially, you know, it, it's kind of almost like empowering individuals. So like, you know, the media bargaining code was about empowering, you know, publishers to be able to negotiate with Facebook and Google. The social media anti-trolling bill, which is, has been passed, just proposed, that's about making it easier to sue people for defamation online, particularly online accounts. So, you know, it, it's this idea of kind of interesting regulation, but it is kind of, it really is world leading in a way. People might disagree with it, but like there is totally this kind of permission structure at the moment to try and do something about big tech. And I think that they're trying to make that a big part of their re-election campaign. It's the government basically going, we understand tech. We know what finsters are. We know how to pinch to Zoom. (laughs) Amanda, actually, you know, we have come off the back of at least two years of pandemic life through which technology formed the primary prism through which many of us kind of saw the world, access news. How do you think that changes our relationship with technology? The fact that we've come off this really intense two-year period of of only seeing the world through technology, do you think that that's going to have an effect on us? I think it's definitely had an effect on us. I think it's changed how people view technology. Previously, there was a lot of concern about, oh, kids are gaming too much on the screens too much. And now I think parents probably have a bit of a better understanding of that realm now. People understand how to do video calls. Video calls are a lot more common. Like just generally people have become a bit more tech savvy and unafraid of technology and the internet. I'm glad you brought it up because I I, I do think Internet culture was, because I think a lot of us were on the internet so much this last year, I do think the internet culture kind of streaked ahead. In the world of internet culture, Amanda, what is the story that you most loved this year? The, the, the thing that happened in, in tech news that you're just like, that's my favourite thing of the year. My favourite, absolutely favourite online story of the year was the story about a 27-year-old Russian man who's trapped on a Chinese music survival show because people would not vote him off. <laughs> and he did not want oh, to be there. I, I, I laugh, but that sounds like it's actually really yeah. bad. Well, he was originally hired as a translator, but they needed more contestants and they thought he was good looking. They asked him to sign up and he was like, yeah, sure, whatever. Figuring that he would be voted out immediately. There were like 90 contestants. But people really connected to how much he hated his job. So they just wanted to keep him there. This is uh, Vladislav Ivanov. Uh, I'm looking at pictures of the internet. He does not seem happy to be there. Uh, for you, Cam, in the, world, in the realm of, of internet culture, what was, the, what was your, fa- your favourite internet culture story of 2021? I think my favourite kind of almost like trend or, or meta story is about how increasingly everyone became like online detectives. <laughs> like we saw, we saw everyone like, you know, through things like the true crime stuff with like Gabby Petito or like, you know, Marvel movie uh, uh, trailers where people break down like every single, you know, frame looking for Easter eggs and what's going to come up in the next movie. That seems to have like almost like become such an enmeshed part of internet culture, internet sleuths. In terms of stories that flew under the radar that you think more people should have paid attention to, Amanda, is there anything that stands out? Look, everyone's brains are fried. I'm not going <laughs> to shame anyone for not for like turning off in the middle of the year and being like, nope, that's enough news for me. I've had all of the news that I want for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, so I'm not going to shame anyone for, for not paying attention. However, I do want to bring up one news story 
that basically just happened, where a paragraph from this year's World Inequality Report went viral. The viral post did misinterpret it a little bit, but what it basically said was that an 11-minute flight to space emits at least 75 tonnes of carbon per passenger, and around 1 billion people in the world emit approximately one tonne of carbon each per year. So basically, Jeff Bezos's joyride to space would emit the equivalent of one person's entire carbon output for their entire lifetime. And for me, this story is kind of emblematic of where we are and where we're going. Like everyone's so excited about new technology, rushing towards it. And as exciting as it is, it's leaving people behind in the dust. And there were people who are going to suffer because of it. And we're not really thinking about that. I feel like Jeff Goldblum had this in Jurassic Park. We were so busy thinking about what we could do. We didn't think about what we should do. Exactly. Wise man. Exactly. Uh, For you, Cam Wilson, the most underrated story? Probably that the government is going full steam ahead on the idea of doing age verification for online services. So that essentially means that they want to, when you access things like gambling or pornography or other things that are supposed to be age restricted, they're trying to come up with a standardized way to figure out how old you are. um, And that's through government means. That sounds kind of like normal. Okay, well, it's probably good to know that someone who is 18 years old is 18 years old or, or whatever. But the question about it is how do you actually do it? Like how do you implement it? Because you've got to figure out a way to be able to prove to services that you are the age you are. And that usually requires like giving something like your driver's license over. So in in reality, you might end up with a system where either you're required to give your driver's license every time you want to say, uh, look at online porn or use different kind of social media platforms or it may even be through a government kind of service that functions as like an intermediary, which means that, you know, you could you could say, essentially you get, get a government uh, login that you would then prove you're 18 and then use to use those services. But that means that you would then have to, in a way, tell the government every time you're using one of these things, which like to me is either one, either having to put my driver's license with every platform or letting the government know I'm looking at porn is probably not like my ideal, like, like uh, a way of using the internet, but like I this, feel this like is how it your works. driver's license and pornography should be kept very separate. <laughs> I don't know, so like just an instinctive yeah. thought I have. Um, look, yeah, uh, yeah. just very quickly before we wrap up, is 2022 the year that the QR code goes back to dead? Because it does feel like it it was dead, and suddenly in the last years it came back to life. Uh, Amanda, will the QR code be part of our lives ongoing, or is it going to disappear into ignominy again? Well, the coronavirus isn't going to disappear, so I don't think QR codes are. <laughs> and how about you, Cam? <laughs> uh, my head says no, but my heart says yes. I never <laughs> want to see a QR code ever again. <laughs> and lastly, the final question for Download This Show for the year 2021. Amanda Yo, will next year be better than this year? <laughs> it depends on what you mean by better. I think some things might get better. Some things will definitely get worse. I really hope things get better. I feel like every year that we keep going is an opportunity to make things better. So in that respect, it'll be better. But I think just generally as a society, we have a lot to fix. This is true. That was, by the way, some of the most dexterous fence sitting I think I've ever heard on this show. (laughs) Uh, I I applaud you. That was skilled. That was crafty. Uh, Cam, I'll leave the last word to you. I'm I'm not going to fence it. No, you you take the paling out of your butt. 
<laughs> Give me an answer. 2022, worse than the last two years or better? It's going to be better because I'm getting married and I'm so excited for it. So <laughs> it's all about me and I can't wait. <laughs> Do you know what? I'll take it. Hey, uh, very big thank you to everybody that has listened to this program for the last year. It has been an absolute joy and indeed sanity giving at times. Thank you so much to all the people that have messaged and leave reviews. I do want to say a very big thank you to the many engineers here at the ABC who've recorded us today. We're being recorded by Roy Huberman. But of course, to producer Zoe Ferguson, who has been putting together this show for the last year. Huge thank you to her. And we'll see you in 2022. Hopefully it lives up to Cam's expectations. We'll find out. My name has been Mark Fennell and thank you for listening to another year of Download This Show. I'll see you next year. Goodbye. Hold up. 